What really gets me up in the morning is thinking that we can recruit people who want to go out and be a farmer, get skills, get experiences with us, you know, over three to five years and then go run their own farm. We'd love nothing better than to have alumni from our farm that are farmers in this area. You know, and then we, we share a network together and we can compare notes. We think it, the more that we can do that, the more we'll attract a pipeline of great people. Hey everybody, before we get started, I wanna tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J E. T-S. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He was lucky he, wasn't, he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. Where, no. Did, like, where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house? Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house? Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. My guest today is Tim Belk. Tim, his wife, Sarah, and his children operate Wild Hope Farm out of Chester, South Carolina. After the Belt family sold their department store with close to 300 locations and 25,000 employees that have been in their family since 1888, Wild Hope Farm was started. This is a fantastic episode about leveraging your skill sets to make a true family affair. As Tim says, while being CEO of Belk, he and his wife, Sarah, were like two ships passing in the night. This organic farm gave them the opportunity to do something together and leverage her idea of becoming an organic farmer and his experience as a retail operator and CEO. The organic food market is robust. And as you've heard on previous episodes on this podcast, farming isn't easy. This is a great episode with Tim where you will hear how to assess a market and start a farm like this from scratch, from idea to planning to execution and all the lessons learned along the way. The power of community, why the Belt family has always been involved in the community and how they are doing it today with organic farming and healthier lifestyles. Building an incubator of farmers, making change by attracting people passionate about the cause and giving them what they need to succeed on their own, plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Tim Belk. Tim, great to see you this morning. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, looking forward to talking, Sam. Curious. I read a quote. I think it was from you. But it said, we're a small team, but we have big ambitions. Did you say that? Yeah, we, we did have big plans. And in hindsight, they were bigger than we realized. So was that quote before the pandemic a couple of years ago? Yes, we, 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 had these, we developed these plans in 2017. We started putting the infrastructure in, so pandemic wasn't on anybody's radar screen at that point. When you say bigger than you realize, are you open to talking about that? Sure. You know, just as background, 
we planned to start farming on three and a half acres, add another three to it, and then double again in the third year to 12. And we didn't really understand what that meant. We didn't know how hard it would be to put in the infrastructure at the same time we were harvesting the fields and delivering to customers, you know, each year planning to double. And in hindsight, you know, that was very taxing. We left a lot of blood, sweat, and, you know, tears on the trail. <laughs> Although, you know, looking back on it, it was great. We, we learned so much during that time period. We learned about ourselves, and we also learned about how different it is as you scale up to those different levels. Curious, just from the start, there was something I read about you, would have been probably close to 20 years ago, but you were talking about when you were running your company and y'all had made, I think, a couple acquisitions and y'all had a plan and a model and it was accelerating. And you said it was an exhilarating and rare learning experience. I think talking about the the growth in the 2000s with, with you and Belk, it seems just when I read that line, it it seems that, and I'm curious if, the, if there's any connection here to the farm and what we're talking about now, it seems when you have a plan, even if that plan's ambitious, the hardship, the difficulty, things that work, things that don't work, it sounds that like you kind of enjoy that from a standpoint of adventure or excitement or challenge. Is that true? Yeah, I like big challenges and then tackling those challenges, dreaming up you know, big ideas and then trying to make them happen. So maybe with, because we're talking today about your farm and what you and your family and your daughters and your wife, what y'all are doing. Can you say maybe going back to 2017, what you saw in the market, what you saw with produce, what you saw maybe with, with obesity or diabetes, what you saw with climate change and what you saw with your own 220 acre farm and kind of what you wanted to accomplish or what your dream was at that time? Well, it started with my wife and she always had the idea of becoming an organic farmer. And I had uh, catapulted out of Belk. I worked a year for a private equity new owner, you know, the family company and then left. And so I wanted to do something that allowed me to spend time with my wife and also would bring in the kids and their kids. So that, that was really what I had in mind. And I didn't really know how to grow stuff. I knew how to organize things, you know, and, and plan and manage. But I didn't really know about growing things and didn't really have a sense of organic. You know, what does it mean to be an organic farm? So this was really, Sarah is the vision person. And I, I was sort of the project manager. It was my way of trying to do something to involve ourselves together. Because when I was at Belk, we were like ships passing in the night. <laughs> And so we went around to different farms on the East Coast and a, and a couple on the West Coast and looked at how they operated. And that allowed us to understand the different types of farms that are out there. Big ag, traditional ag, small, two couple, one couple farm, certified organic, not certified organic, biodynamic. There are a lot of buzzwords out there. <laughs> and um, we met people who ran student farm programs at higher ed institutions like Clemson, Warren Wilson College, Duke University. So we met a wide variety of people and that allowed us to kind of sift ideas together and come up with a plan and also have an idea of, you know, what we wanted to be when we grew up. So that was a rough idea. And we had to have that in order to recruit somebody to come do it. We needed a farm manager. So that's how we started. Would you see, would you like, would you not like, all these buzzwords, all things can be trendy. You also seem to have a skill set for execution, for cash flow, for operations, even though your family has achieved or experienced really strong business success. You don't seem somebody that's emotional or that's going to be undisciplined. Is there anything that you can say about what you saw that you liked and what you didn't like and, and the vision that you wanted to paint when you would recruit people to be a part of it? and you craft your own story, what you wanted to see. Yeah, I had a, had a thought of, you know, this, this needs to be financially sustainable. That seemed like a great way to say it. You know, 
environmentally sustainable, financially sustainable. You know, I think that's a great way to connect with people in this sort of industry. That was an idea we had in mind. Didn't know really whether that was possible or not. And, um, you know, we did invest, you know, significant resources of our own. You know, we invested the capital to put the infrastructure in place. And we had a consultant that helped us come up with a plan to be a permaculture farm. And that's, we don't have time to get into that definition right now, but the first person we hired was the student farm manager at Clemson. He ran sort of an organic farm program and he had a five to six acre farm. And he was, he was the best guy that we met um, during that sort of visit and learn process. And um, we, we together took that early plan and made our own three-year plan and he was into farm design and um, he was all about also making it financially sustainable where we could pay competitive wages and make enough cash to reinvest in the farm and stay current. What do you think most people get wrong that makes it not financially sustainable if you exclude the environmentally sustainable piece? I think most farmers have a problem with having the capital to buy the land, invest in the equipment. And um, that's the number one barrier for young farmers, certainly. Another problem is that it's a tough job and you get hip checked into the wall by the weather. You always have to zig and zag um, based on, you know, your plan gets changed all the time by weather. So but I'd say those are, those are the two big things, you know, getting talent who will come and you can train them, retain them and build on them is also, you know, a challenge. You're involved in several things, initiatives, efforts, nonprofits, other types of boards. So this is not the only thing I read that you spend a half a day here a week. I don't know if that's changed or not. But when you take somebody that you're looking to recruit or you're seeing how they think, how they operate, how their own wiring is going to fall in line with the vision that you have or want, what have you learned about picking the right operator for you and your businesses or nonprofits that's going to give you your best chance to execute the outcomes you want while also not burdening you with work or time that you don't want to spend or need to spend because of the other things you have going on? I think you want somebody who has the passion, you know, who has the cause in their heart and really believes strongly in it. That's one of the main things. And then secondly, you want somebody who can execute on the mission. You know, and, and the mission can vary a lot from depending on what size organization we're talking about. Might involve scaling up, may not, may be just articulating the calls and developing a followership. What have you learned about husband-wife teamwork when she was a visionary and you're the, you're the superintendent and a little bit more than the superintendent, but working well together? I, I imagine most couples couldn't make, couldn't make that happen. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's, you know, definitely, you know, a backstory there. And, you know, when I asked Sarah, don't you want to, what, you know, I was casting about trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And, and so I said, don't you want to start that organic farm? And she kind of said, you know, I'm too old to do that. And I went, well, how about, how about if I'm your project manager? And so, you know, I think uh, while she did want to do that at one point, I think it, you know, perhaps that ship had passed and she saw it maybe as an opportunity to involve family, involve me, mix it together. But I don't know that, you know, actually doing it every day or, running a production farm. I don't think we, we had that line of sight. Anyway, so, so sometimes, you know, in my wanting to build something, that's not necessarily what she wants to do. Right. So I guess, are you saying, A, it's evolved, and B, she's got the, the giftings and the skill sets of, of the visionary, but she has no interest in the, in the weeds or the operations. So therefore, things are maybe more compatible there than maybe somebody that also has a vision and opinions and perspective about how it's going to be done. And therefore that on top of a normal husband wife dynamic, it would be even more complicated. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, soon after we hired our farm manager, we were starting to develop a plan and just in the very beginnings of putting some infrastructure in place to support the farm. And my uh, third child 
a daughter who was living in Boston raised her hand and said, hey, dad, would you consider me for this venture? And so that was sort of, what? <laughs> and she had, well, she was a few years out of college. And I had to think, that did I send my daughter to college to come work for the family farm? <laughs> and that's what her friends were saying to her. Hey, Peanut, are you kidding? <laughs> and then the more we thought about it, we thought, oh, startup, a growing sector, somewhat disruptive to, to the industry it's in. And um, coaching your daughter in business, all those things sounded good. And um, so suddenly, before we knew it, we had one daughter who was involved. And my wife liked having family, things that pull family together. So that, you know, that registered with her. And then we had another daughter who was out west who decided to come home and be our first intern. <laughs> she worked for us for nine months. We had two daughters working there. And then the third one has, has worked there during summers while she was in college and, and afterwards. So um, I don't know. It's, it's been, you know, there, there have been parts of it that we each like. And I think Sarah's found some parts that she likes, although, you know, there might be some things she'd change too. I hear you. That she may or may not be able to do. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. She likes getting out and doing things, but she doesn't want to be saddled with any day to day. Yes, sir. She loves the flower part of the farm. That's her vision too. Right. When you say disruptive, what are your principles there? What are your principles here? And is there anything that's connected to things more at large that you've seen that you evaluate to know if you're going to pull the trigger and take on something like this? I thought I was going to do something um, that would involve family pull it together. And I also realized in the process that there's a, you know, a fast growing, that organic food is growing three times as fast as total food is growing. And this organic movement is being pushed by a lot of, a lot of moms who are thinking about food that their families eat and also about the younger generation who are very passionate about it and are thinking far beyond things that we would think about. And so it definitely um, has put us in touch with some different trends and some more future futuristic thinking. One of the challenges in farming is um, a lot of people are getting out of farming. The number of farmers have dwindled. The amount of acreage under agricultural production has dwindled. And, you know, the, the type of farming that has occurred has been chemical based. And so knowing who your farmer is, trying to look at how, how the soil, what the soil health is and how that affects healthy crops and getting it in the hands of consumers more quickly. So it's fresh, you know, food immediately degrades once it's harvested. And so if you can get it in a customer's hands quickly, it tastes better and has more nutrition. So anyway, there's just, there was a lot there that was interesting from from that perspective, and it's it's growing at a faster rate. And we, we'd like to show that, hey, you could do this. You could make it self-sustainable. And we saw that in several farm programs that we visited. Um, they would say, yes, we have alumni that are doing that. And one last thing I would add is that we found that there really wasn't any good information on things below the sales line on an income statement. People would share sales, but below that methodology, Benchmark data didn't exist. Do you see yourself and your family positioning yourself to be a resource from a capital standpoint and educational standpoint to help people overcome barriers that prevent the everyday entrepreneur from tackling this space? Like, do you see something much bigger than just your individual farm? I don't know. I, I, I don't want to, you know. I don't want to speak too much there. We're still in the discovery phase. And early on, I thought, you know, at some point, if we were able to get this farm up and running and self-sustaining from a financial point of view, that there may be an opportunity to create a nonprofit beside it. And I thought, you know, if we did that four or five years after starting the farm, perhaps it would be on education. And could we, could we perhaps train some of the future farmers? Could we recruit, develop, and train, and then they would go out on their own? And maybe we could help 
determine a little bit what is that model and what is the education. And I learned that, you know what, I really don't have much at all in terms of education or credibility to train farmers. And there's a lot of information out there already, and it would be duplicative. So I realized, oh, okay, not that. And we've done a little bit of work with our farm association on financial benchmarking, financial literacy and benchmarking. There's a lot of power in that. So Pennsylvania has a really good survey and method and already a sample size. We're trying to do that in North and South Carolina. We're in the early stages. And, you know, I think that um, it's interesting. Um, I've tried to look at what is the science behind the vegetables we grow? Can you show that organic is better for you and better tasting? Or is it just marketing? And, you know, there are a few efforts around this. But at this point, I haven't been able to see any science that would support that other than local. And, and yes, we don't use some pesticides and sprays that are could be poisonous. But um, I haven't seen anything that says it's better for you. And one thing that I have noticed that there is science behind is Eating vegetables, um, there's a lot of there's a growing body of science that shows the impact on your health. Not necessarily organic vegetables, but vegetables-based diet can be positive for your health. So, you know, to me, there's some potential there. I don't know exactly what yet. So, what you're saying is, your wife had this idea, this vision, this passion. And then that's when you take it. You're looking for something for your family. You're looking for something with her. You said you are two ships passing in the night. And, you know, I read that you had 25,000 employees, I guess, uh, right before you sold and stepped down as CEO. So you're scheduled the demands. And then with your daughters, you've been able, you said three have worked for your farm. Uh, Your first daughter came up from the Northeast. Your second was an intern. So emotionally or relationally because of her and what she sees, then that's when you started to look and back in with the data and with the trends. And what you're saying now is instead of just maybe your passion or your interests are more in the process, the execution, seeing the vision, but then also understanding from an operator standpoint, how to get there, but you're continuing to see data, understand it. And you're also involved in several other things. You're trying to make sure that you have clarity around the concept, the solution, and what the ultimate value is to the consumer before you aggressively commit anything or do anything that would just entrench you further before you're clear on the data? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, somewhat. Um, we're still thinking about our farm. Are there, what, what, do we, what do we do with it? We're certainly proud of it. And um, there's an organization in Charleston called um, Coastal Conservation League, and they they want to preserve land along the coast. And one of their big ideas was to preserve land, you ought to help farms survive. You ought to make it easier for them. Farmers like to grow stuff; they don't like to to mess with bringing it to market and and distributing it. And so they created an organization called Grow Food Carolina, and and they basically set up food hubs. So to take away the logistics side of the farming business and they match supply and demand in Charleston and they've been very successful. You know, um, is there an opportunity to do something like that in the Charlotte area? If you can imagine green belts around the city with farms, is there an opportunity for that? There are conservation organizations that, you know, are now focused on that as kind of one work stream within their organization, like the conservation fund. They've done, they're doing it in Atlanta now, and they're do it, trying to do it in other cities. So I, I think there are several applications, perhaps, that you know, might be opportunities. Uh, think of it as a nonprofit that sits alongside this farm. Right now, it's really just a lot of hot air from me talking, and, um, but I think there's, there's definitely some potential here, and we're sort of in the stage of exploring it. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, 
traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S., Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come. Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He was lucky he he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. no. Like, where did he hide? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. They just didn't come to their house, yeah, and they right. went to your sister's house. Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. I read a line from the Organic Trade Association that if every farmer converted in the U.S. converted to organic production, we could eliminate 500 million pounds of persistent and harmful pesticides from entering the environment annually. I'm just curious, I haven't, up to this point, I haven't really asked you to share the value at the end of the day or the pressing challenges with climate change, with pesticides, with erosion, you know, with energy. I know y'all committed, y'all made a statement about net zero energy at some point. For listeners here, before we're out in the conversation, can you maybe just share the value or the needs, the problems that need to be solved and why it matters and why all this work is worth it in the first place? Well, there are a number of people sort of in the organic space, in the permaculture space, that believe that, you know, our type of farming is is uh, which focuses on soil health and regenerative farming, where we're not just stripping minerals out of the land, but we're actually adding to it. We're, we're measuring the organic content every year. We'd, we'd like to think we could add 25 to 50 basis points of organic matter to it to replenish it so the soil structure is healthier. We'd like to think that, you know, we can add to the mineral base in the soil and so that it uh, supports healthier crops. We're we're a type of farm that is we call ourselves mechanized low till, and so we don't we don't uh, go in and tear up ground as often as a traditional ag farm would would. And we also put cover crops on it during a lot of the time when there's no market crop growing. So these cover crops can replenish the soil. They, they, they can push nitrogen into the soil, take it out of the atmosphere and push it into the soil. And so there, there are certain things about our method of farming that people get excited about and think it's, you know, healthy. I'm not sure that you can measure that. I'm not sure how, how much we can crow about it. But, you know, it, you know, I think there are some positive aspects of it. Is that, is that helpful? Yes, sir. That's great. I mean, that's what you see. That's the connection and that's the value. And um, I was just curious to kind of hear your thoughts behind it, you know, because there's so much information out there and uh, kind of what you see in a clear way and then what's fuzzy. Yeah. So I didn't really realize this until our first farm manager left, but we're, we're sort of a, with 12 acres under production. And um, that's a lot. Actually, it doesn't sound like many, but it's a lot of vegetables coming off and we have three fields. And so we use tractors 
a lot of our work is done in a mechanized fashion, not entirely, but a lot. And so um, we're also with emphasis on lower till, less tillage up of the of the soil. And so for some reason we're there are not many of those farms out there. We are somewhat unique. And I discovered that when the when our farmer left and we started to recruit, we had to tell our story and we actually attract people who want to come work for us because of that reason. And we we've been really lucky that we've attracted some talent. They and they're attracted because it's regenerative for the soil. And um, you know, that's a that's a cause for many people. What's the alternative? No machinery? Well, you know, the lar- the more acreage, the more mechanized you are. So that's not an issue. Okay. The question or the options are, do you need to be no- no-till? Is it too complicated? And no-till is basically you, le- you put cover crop on there, you-, you let it grow. And then when it gets right before it goes to seed, you crimp it and you fold it over and it becomes mulch. And it becomes a weed suppressant, and it also puts biomass into the soil. And you plant right into that cover crop mulch. It's hard to get the timing right. It's hard to get, you know, it's to optimize when does the seed of the, you know, market crop like broccoli get planted, and does that timing sync up well with when you just crimped the cover crop? So there's more complexity there. And we're doing some grants and some testing along that lines to try to see if we can't, you know, fine tune that, you know, a big business where would be optimized that. Given your experience in retail, what do you see for, for vendors with organic produce? I read where Costco is the largest from a retail standpoint with annual organic and then Whole Foods is number two. I read that Costco was $4 billion. You obviously have an advantage from understanding retail, from understanding supply chain, from understanding what they want. And I know these are some of the biggest brands in the world, so I'm not trying to be far-fetched with this question, but I'm curious to understand your, your perception. And then I also think about the normal organic farmer is probably a creative, independent person, very values-driven. So this, from a supply chain standpoint, this seems like a very challenging space. Is there anything that you see that anyone's going to have to learn how to navigate and overcome if they're going to want to actually have growing market share in the supply of organic produce uh, with the growing trends in the market the way you see it today? So, uh, you know, I think you're kind of asking, you know, how do you survive competing against Walmart, Costco, and other large-scale operators that, you know, are into that volume produce? And it's organic. So what's, what's our niche? How do we, what's our position in the market? Is that sort of it? And how do we survive and grow? Kind of, um, but also, which you kind of pointed this out, you know, with an organic supplier, I imagine you have the option of, if you have the capacity and the the infrastructure to go direct to retail, or you're going to go direct wholesale. And so I was coming at that question more of a wholesale standpoint, but it sounds like you're looking at it more direct to retail. I'll I'll answer, how do we compete with Costco and Walmart and others that have organic offerings and it's growing. And, but first let me say to you that we're a CSA farm. And so our main channel is going, is selling a box of vegetables weekly to customers who sign up for that, for the season. And we have three seasons, sort of a spring, summer, late summer, fall, and then winter. And that's where probably two thirds of our production goes subscription model and there there are five pickup locations in this sort of Charlotte Metro market. We also sell at two farmers markets where where think of that as retail and people go and at those markets they know that everybody there grows what they're selling. And so they like getting to know who their farmer is and their discerning customers think of it and educate it. Those are those also double as pickup locations for us. And then the, our third channel, besides CSA farm shares and retail, is wholesale. And we basically use that as a, as a way to offload extra produce. We had a tremendous year last year. And so um, as we overproduced, 
we channeled some of that into wholesale and we discovered there was a lot of demand there for us. Um, and some of that's because we're developing a, a little bit of a reputation just in the beginning stages of it. But those are the sort of the three channels. And I would say to you, um, we don't really compete with Walmart, Costco, and others. We appeal to customers that want to know where does their food come from? And so, you know, if you think about what's, what's, what should we emphasize in who we are, we're an organic, certified organic farm. That gives some people some confidence of things that we don't do, basically. And, and secondly, we are local. And I would say to you that people value the local as much or more than they do the organic. And so they want to know who their farmer is. They want to know maybe where their food comes from. They want to know a little bit about how is it produced. We now have 9,000 followers on Instagram. And Instagram is a really great way to kind of communicate. How's your food grown? How do you do it? You know, and as a customer, do I like that? So we're, we're kind of, you know, local. And so small and medium-sized farms that do this local thing some of whom are organic, some, some of whom aren't organic, but they do most of the organic practices. That's what we're targeted at. And we feel like there's a lot more demand out there in the Charlotte market for people like us. We'd like to hold hands with other farmers and grow the market and uh, not, not worry about fighting over chopping it up, but actually let's grow the market. Over the decades of your career, how have you seen the importance of community and buying local evolve or stay the same or change in a different way, given where you started your career and then where you're talking, what you're talking about now and what creates an impact and what strengthens a brand within the community? Well, so that is, that's a good intersection between, you know, what I did at Belk and what we're doing now in the organic retail space, because at Belk, we, we had a business strategy to get involved in the community, get to know our customers, understand them better develop a relationship by the sales associate, you know, in the store and in other ways. And we also did it from a philanthropy point of view. My grandfather believed that by giving back to communities uh, that in which he operated, you know, it would, it would come back to him and business. So it was a business strategy. It wasn't just altruism. And, ter- and in terms of the farming thing, we feel like, hey, we're, we're this small fledgling community and we want to support each other, survive and promote this lifestyle of healthy eating, knowing where your food comes from, building the soil, all those things really tie together well. So we're, we're sort of we're trying, to, trying to feed people who want to eat healthy and also trying to promote this lifestyle in, a, in sort of a broader sense. What's the pride for your family out of Charlotte? in the community, what you're doing now, also focused on education, several other things, but what's that mean to you? What's that mean to your, your parents, your grandparents before you and what you're doing today and what you're trying to set up for the future generations? Yeah. Um, well, we definitely like to get involved in our community. That's the way we were brought up by our parents and our, and our grandparents believe the same thing. And so we're big believers in that. And I think Charlotte's this market's become what it is because people have come here and gotten involved. A lot, a lot of that came from the banks bringing in talent from New York, San Francisco, in other cities, and you know they brought ideas with them. And there was always something on the horizon that was attractive, that was something to look forward to and make this a community a better place. So those ideas have been welcome here, and we like getting involved and you know trying to make a difference. We'd love to support the food farming, you know, ecosystem here. So you talked about how the dreams that you had, the small team, big dreams from the start. And then you talked about some things learned and you talked about the acreage, your original goals, and then kind of where things are today. What are you looking at for the next few years? And what are you and your wife and your daughters, what are y'all really trying to execute well on over the next three to five years? Well, we're, um, we, we just hired a new farm manager, so we, we look forward to getting you know, him transitioned in, oriented, onboarded. He has experience with small farms like ourselves. He had one himself outside of Columbia, worked for another one there, and then eventually went to work for a big ag operation 
that uh, developed an organic produce. So he has a good blend of all those experiences. And, um, you know, um, I don't know, I would say that'll be chapter three in our evolution is a, is a kind of a small to medium sized certified organic farm. And, and we'll see where that goes. And I'm, in, I'm intrigued in the possibilities of kind of building out, you know, attracting other complementary farmers to, you know, our, our area in Chester, either on our property, because we're not using all of it, or, you know, building out others who do farming there. would love to think that that could be possible. It sounds like you're in a position now after a few years in with some leadership transitions taking place where you have somebody with a with kind of a, a background from the, the organic principles themselves, but then also operating things and growing things or producing things more at scale. And so you're trying to continue to empower this work and the benefit to the people in, in Chester, but then you're also trying to f- uh, continue to enable and empower the right leadership to continue and grow the production. And then also strengthen your position within the community to essentially attract people that are passionate about this and people that are talented within this and hopefully continue to to accelerate the cause itself. Is that a fair reflection on what you shared? Yeah, some degree. So just within our immediate area, we love to think that there could be a, a community of farms around us, some on our property, but some around us as well. We'd love to think in, in some many, and many good things could come out of that. But separate from that, somewhat related, would like to think that there could be bands of green space around Charlotte. If you go out 90 miles and you just do, you know, a circle around it, if we could preserve land, put farmers on it, and supply locally from those farms, that would be a great thing. That would really increase the quality of life in this region. And um, I think there are a lot of people that would support something like that. That's starting to happen in some other communities. Seems to have some potential here. Other communities around Charlotte or elsewhere? Elsewhere, Atlanta. So Emory has a goal of getting 75% of their food locally grown. Who does? Emory University. Okay. And they partnered with the Conservation Fund to preserve land and put farmers on it as a way to assure supply. Yes, sir. And um, the Conservation Fund wants to do that in some other communities. And I gave you the example earlier of the Coastal Conservation League and Grow Food Carolina in Charleston. That's another example. So what are the consequences? It sounds like there's a very concentrated strategic effort to preserve agriculture, but also beauty, lifestyle, health of lots of different communities or a few different communities around the country. Is that a fair statement? You know, I don't know how widespread it is. I've just observed it in those two cases. There certainly is a, a widespread effort to conserve land. There are a lot of land trusts that do that. Um, it's, it's an innovative step to think of farms as a vehicle to, to, to do more of it. Can you speak to the consequences of how things may evolve over the next one, two, three decades if people like these individuals involved at Emory or elsewhere you know, don't do this work in some form or fashion? The way that you're talking about here, like what's the motive behind it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how the future will evolve. I know there'll be a lot of tension between growth and development and preserving land. So, um, you know, we're, we're all about trying to preserve green space in these, you know, great communities in which we live, makes it a better place. And I think we'll, we'll figure that out, hopefully in, in a good way. Um, I, don't, I don't know, uh, it's hard to speak to the broader how broad that trend is and, you know, how, how much people will grow into that concept. But I'm, I'm excited about the potential. What's it like doing this with your family? I mean, I asked you about that on the front end. We talked about the practical side of it. But do you have days where you, you feel the benefit or the joy of working alongside your wife with this, working alongside your daughters? Sure. I mean, one of the things we've done in the past is before we had the farm thing going on, we would gather at Thanksgiving and have a big potluck Thanksgiving outdoors, sort of Southern style. And that was just a lot of fun. And, you know, people 
other families would come, you know, sibling families and some neighbors. And that was, that was a lot of fun, kids of all ages. So having gatherings at the farm it, uh, makes it a gathering place, a destination. And uh, two of my daughters have gotten married there. So it's meaningful to the family. But they're, you know, running a farm. You know, I don't, I don't know if it is or not, but you might say it's harder than running retail. <laughs> so there, there was a, a front cover of Forbes magazine um, one time where it had a board meeting and it said, and it had family members in somewhat chaotic picture and there were babies in the picture. And it, the title of it was The Joys and Tears of Nepotism. <laughs> So I always remember how how hard it can be, you know, despite the great happy times of like a Thanksgiving gathering. But trying to work with your family is not easy. And, you know, it can be a lot more emotional. And, um, you know, misunderstandings can happen. But, you know, there are two thirds of the businesses in the country are private family businesses. There are a lot of them. Um, but yeah, it's, it takes work and effort. Just at a, from a bigger scale, what have you learned that's been most crucial to you about doing the best for the business, but operating with character and trying to maintain relationships as best as you can within a family business? Well, that's a, that's a big question. I'm not sure how to, you know, capture the moment in in answering your question, but there's a lot of gratitude and satisfaction in working with family. It it can be complicated, like you say, and there can be different agendas going on, but if you have the values that are aligned, I think things can work out pretty well. And if people don't mind working hard, you know, to, to help make it happen, then, you know, I think good things can happen and you can, you can appreciate Appreciate a lot of that when you look back, not necessarily when you're in the trenches and you've got to lay pipe to put in an <laughs> irrigation system during winter and it's, re- it's a really wet winter. You know, it's just like, why in the world am I doing this? <laughs> this, miser- this misery will never end. <laughs> um, but, you know, you get through those moments and, and, you know, there's some satisfaction at the end of it. I'd probably take the pipe in the winter in the mud more than some of the other situations that we haven't talked about, but maybe that's just me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just as we wrap up, I'm curious, the other benefits to your farm from a wildlife standpoint or other benefits, is there anything as we close that you can speak to that either brings you joy, brings your family joy that you see with uh, just all the other benefits to your farm, to your land that's done because of, of being organic? Well, we're, we're not producing vegetables on all parts of it. We recently acquired a property adjacent to us. And, you know, we're, we are trying to enhance the, the beauty of that and restore some of that land. So there's one back meadow where we're restoring native grasses to it. It's a fescue pasture that was used for grazing cows. We're on an old dairy farm and we're taking that fescue and turning in native grasses with a real strong pollinator mix. So hopefully it attracts insects and birds and wildlife. And we're doing the same thing to a 40 acre track where we're kind of restoring it with native grasses and it's in the trees to 35 trees an acre. So we're trying to build, build some parts of it with trails on it that take you through that. And we think there'll be, you know, it'll make it a more interesting place to come and visit. So that's that's just one one thing that we're we're working on. But you know what we what really gets me up in the morning is thinking that we can recruit people who want to go out and be a farmer, get skills, get experiences with us, you know, over you know three to five years, and then go run their own farm. We'd love nothing better than to have alumni from our farm that are farmers in this area, you know, and then we we share a network together and we can compare notes. We love, we think it, the more that we can do that, the more we'll attract a pipeline of great people. An incubator. Yeah, an incubator. Exactly. Is there another one that exists? Well, there, there are incubator farms out there and they, 
Um, but we're, we're basically a production farm likes to recruit people whose ambition is to want to be a farmer. And hopefully they stay with us long enough to help us and, and get the skills they need and, you know, um, go on to run their own place. So we love to be a part of some of that. That's really neat. So 10, 20 years from now, what will feel like a success to you and your family? Gosh, I don't know. Um, it's hard to look that far out, but, you know, a gathering spot for family where our grandkids want to come down there and maybe there are a handful of people who work for us that are running farms within the area. That would be great. And if we can expand that concept, you know, further, that would be amazing. But, you know, I don't, it's a little early to think about that. Yeah. Well, it's really neat. Entrepreneurship and empowerment at its core to try to do the hard work and trying to get something established to bring in as many talented people as you can that are passionate about the same cause and then send them out to have their own, but then benefit from collaboration with you and your family and the rest of the community. It's a very, very neat strategy. And it'll be fun to see how things play out and appreciate your expertise, your experiences, your insights. And it's also fun to hear about you and your family and the work you're doing at this stage and what you're trying to set up for years into the future while also being pretty transparent about the zigs and the zags along the way. <laughs> yes. Progress is not a straight line path. We learn that. Trying to learn that or feel like I'm learning that every morning. <laughs> I bet. Well, I've enjoyed talking with you. This has been great, Sam. Thank you, Tim. It's an honor to be with you. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.